2 Samuel 11. At Legacy Baptist Church, we define sin as anything we say, do, or think which is contrary to the character, the word, or the will of God. In this life, we uh, contend against three primary adversaries. We contend against the world, we contend against the flesh, we contend against the devil. The world being that which is around us that would seek for us to be lured into uh, it into its principles, into its ideologies, into its way of operation. The flesh being that which is inside of us, that sin nature, which desires and craves that which is contrary to the things of God. And of course the devil, Satan himself and his followers who are active. We know the Bible tells us to be sober, be vigilant, First Peter. For our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Each of these seeks to draw us into actions and attitudes which oppose the true and living God. And for us throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, David has been a true example of obedience and love and faithfulness to God, both in heart and in action. He's not been a perfect man. He's not made perfect decisions. He's not done everything right. But he's been a, a wonderful example. And for that, God has blessed him. As he has been faithful, God has been faithful. As he has obeyed, God has blessed. God, we know, as we considered uh, 2 Samuel 7, a few, a little better than a month ago, God promised to make him a house, to give him a perpetual kingdom, that those of his lineage would never fail to sit on the throne of David because of David's faithfulness. But one of the most interesting and engaging and indeed, even helpful things about the character of David in the Bible is that he is made so transparent. The Bible no more seeks to conceal David's faults than it does attempt to magnify his strengths. Between the histories and the Psalms, we really, we really can have an intimate understanding of, of the king, of the psalmist, of David, in a way that we may not necessarily be able to have an intimate understanding of any other man in the Bible with the exception of Christ himself. David is really laid out there for us. As we read the Psalms and we see his inner turmoil and, and the things that he went through, as we read the histories in First and Second Samuel, and we understand his life and his thinking, we see the parallels in First and Second, uh, and particularly First Chronicles. And today in Second Samuel eleven, we're going to mark. A dramatic turning point in David's life. We might say it's, as we look at it, perhaps the second most impacting day or time period of his life. The first being that time when God gave him the covenant that we now call the Davidic covenant. But this is going to be impacting in the other way. It's going to be a turning point for the worse. As we studied the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7, we mentioned that that day would become the very best day of his life. A day which secured both for him and for his posterity a future. The events of 2 Samuel 11 became an important time which initiated the decline of David's strength. The decline of David's blessing. The decline of his success as king in Israel. And really, it's, it's the beginning of a snowball that's going to roll to the very end of his life. 
It's the beginning of problems. It's going to initiate problems that will follow him for the rest of his life. And we're talking about his sin with Bathsheba at first, and then eventually his murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Our account begins in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, and we read this. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, there are a couple of things I need to mention here of importance. Number one, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago when I was preaching in 2 Samuel chapters 8 through 10. Remember, we got through three chapters in one week there. Uh, that the events of David and Bathsheba took place during the events that were overviewed in chapters 8 through 10. As I have been looking at that more closely, I, I believe I was incorrect in that statement, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, in 2 Samuel 10, verse 14, we find it stated that the Ammonites fled from before Abishai, which was Joab's brother, who he had given command over the second half of his forces to fight the Ammonites while Joab was fighting the main force of the Syrians from the north, if you recall that circumstance. And then the scriptures told us in 2 Samuel 10, verse 14, that Joab returned from the children of Ammon, indicating that at some point Joab engaged in the battle with the Ammonites as well. And so from that, uh, as I studied that, I took from that that Joab engaged in the battle, and of course it's when Joab is engaging the battle of the Ammonites that David has this problem with Bathsheba. However, we find in this chapter that as Joab is fighting Ammon, it says that it was after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. And this is why it seems unlikely that it's actually during that first engagement with Ammon. Most likely what happened is that Joab took care of Syria, Abishai took care of the Assyrians, they fled back into the capital city, the fortified city of Rabbah. Joab came down and began to initiate that battle, but then they recognized that winter was upon them. And the last thing that you want to be doing as a king is sieging a fortified structure in winter, really anywhere, but in, in Canaan. We can study all throughout history, and you find that when winter comes along, wars oftentimes have to cease. It's not as important today, but even as, as late as World War II, we saw that the, the Nazi Germany was very successful in Russia at pushing back the forces until what time? Well, until winter came along, right? And then things got difficult. Things got extremely difficult because of the Russian winters. It slowed them down, and, and, and it, there, there was a, a great difficulty. People were freezing. People were dying. Uh, food shortages, uh, supply lines, very difficult to fight in those conditions. And so that is most likely the time in 2 Samuel when, when Joab returned to Jerusalem. They backed off for the rainy months in Canaan, and we actually pick up in chapter 11, verse 1, at the end of that, uh, at the, the, uh, when the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle. Um, now, it's very important here that I'm going to mention this, and it's, it's, it's a little bit of my opinion, uh, but I believe I'm right in this. It's commonly preached in this passage, growing up I always heard it this way, that, David, that, that the first part of David's sin was that he wasn't where he should have been. That he should have been out on the battlefield. That this was the time when kings go forth to battle and David tarried still in Jerusalem. The first part of his sin was he wasn't where he should have been. 
That's really not what the text is saying here, though. That's really not what the text is saying here. This is not saying that, that this was a time where kings went out with their armies to battle, but rather, as we see the text say, that it was at the, after the year it expired at the time when kings go forth, this was the time when the new year ticked over, where the winter months were ending, and so where the kings were reinitiating their battles. Is, what the, is the idea of this. It's when the kings would say, okay, the rainy season is over, now we can get troops and chariots and supply lines, the things are drying out, we can get them where they need to go for us to continue our military campaigns. It doesn't necessarily mean that David should have been in the army, should have been with the military, and in fact, if we look at the, the um, precedent from 2 Samuel chapters 8 through 10, if we look at the precedent uh, from some of these other battles, it really seems as though David wasn't necessarily actively engaged in most of these at all. When uh, Joab was fighting against Ishbosheth, David wasn't a part of that. We know that Hadad Edzer was the Syrian king that fought against David, and twice David conquered them, killing the captain of the host, but it said nothing about taking Hadad Edzer into captivity, it said nothing about Hadad Edzer being killed. Hadad Edzer, the king of Syria, was not a part of those battles. Nor was, King, uh, nor was David a part of those battles, as the text seems to indicate. They sent forth their generals to fight their battles at this time. And so what we are seeing here is, it, it's the text attempting to orient our minds to the time of David's military campaign. Not necessarily his actions within the campaign. These events took place after the year was expired. And we would understand from this that they would take place likely in that first month of the religious calendar, the month of Abib, which is generally March to April on, the Jew on, on a Gregorian calendar, that time of year in our year. So it's the end of the rainy season. David sends Joab and his men to reinitiate this campaign against Ammon, besieging the fortified city of Rabbah. And the text sets the stage for what is next. And as it does so, it does specifically mention that David stayed in Jerusalem. And verse 2 tells us it came to pass in an evening tide, even, evening tide that David rose, arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And, upon, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. The text tells us David goes upon his roof in the evening. Now, likely he had taken an afternoon rest. As we know, uh, David didn't have air conditioning. And the afternoon hours, the hottest hours of the day, were hours where people would go inside and they would take a rest. We see this in Hispanic culture with their siesta, which would take place in the afternoon. We see it in many other cultures as well. We know Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was beheaded while he was taking one of these afternoon rests. And, of course, David killed the men that did that because they went into his home during his time of rest and beheaded him and brought his head to David, which was uh, infuriating to David. It was during that time of afternoon rest. So this was a common thing. The sun gets hot. It's that mid-afternoon hour. The sun is at its worst. You go inside. You find some shade. You take a nap. And that's common in many, many cultures around the world. So David arises from this time in its early evening. The sun is... The hot part of the sun is done. Perhaps he's gotten a meal. Perhaps he hasn't quite gotten to his time of a meal yet. And he goes up on the roof of his house. He's going to get some air. He's not doing anything wrong here. He's not doing anything wrong. 
But then when he's on the roof, he notices a beautiful woman washing herself. Now, this woman would have been in a court, concealed to those at ground level, but uncovered from the top where David was located. And there's some speculation culturally that Bathsheba may not have been 100% innocent in this either. That, that because so many people lived on their roofs, that there were plenty of opportunities for people to conceal themselves, not just from those who were at ground level, but from those that would have been above them because of the nature of the roofs and so many people living on their roofs. So I, I don't want to take anything away from what David has done here, nor do I necessarily want that to become a thing tonight. We're talking about sin and we're going to look at what David has done here. But it is quite possible that Bathsheba may have had some hand in this through at least indiscretion on her part by the way that she was bathing. However, David sees this woman and at this point he has a choice, right? As far as the record states, it was not his intention to come up on the roof specifically to look for women to lust after. His glance happened upon her, however, and this happens in every man's life, where his glance happens upon a woman in a revealing situation, and he has a choice as to what he will do next. The man of wisdom averts his eyes and then averts his thoughts. But the lust of the eyes would compel a man to linger his gaze, to follow his thoughts, and then to fantasize, to lead those thoughts onward. And such is the case. David did not, in this instance, avert his eyes and his thoughts. He rather lingered and his thoughts were indulged. He indulged his lust. David knows what God would have him to do, but the lie of sin is that his indulgence will be worth the cost. And we'll talk more about the lie of sin next week. So verse 3 says, And David sent messengers and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, this is not a... At this point, we have gone from passion to calculation. David is proactively going out of his way to search this woman out. And again, David is the king, and in this culture, um, David was already a polygamous man. He already had many wives. So he's thinking, who is this woman? Can I make her my wife? While it's not right, while from the beginning God has taught one man, one woman for life, this was something, it was one of those sins that was culturally acceptable, though it always came with consequences. So David is looking for that, but then he finds out, as he inquires of her, that she is married. Now we've just upped the ante. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. She's the daughter of Eliam. And at this point, there are three more reasons why David should curb his lust and move on past this woman. Not only was it wrong for him to indulge the thoughts of one who is not his wife, but now he's pursued her, and he finds out that she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, having a relationship with a married woman is a sin called adultery. David is the theocratic representative of God to the people under the Mosaic Law. The very cornerstone of the Mosaic Law in Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, one of which happens to be, Thou shalt not commit adultery. So David could think toward the fact that this is a married woman, married to Uriah the Hittite. I am God's theocratic representative to my people. I cannot do this. This is sin. 
Secondly, she's married to a man named Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, we'll get there in quite some time from now, we find out that Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. This list of men is given both in 2 Samuel 23, where 37 men are listed. It's also given in 1 Chronicles 11, where 53 men are listed as David's mighty men. That's a fairly small number considering the kinds of armies that David was putting together. 30,000 men, 40,000 men. 53 men were his mighty men. These were men of renown. And then you had that list of, of 37 who were that next step up. And you had various hierarchies within that as well, coming down to just three, the three mightiest of his men. And many of these men had been with David since well before he took the kingdom. Since well before the kingdom was his. They had known him for some time. These were men of distinction. They had stood by David's side. Some of them probably following him since his days of fleeing from Saul. Remember that when, they, when these men fled from Saul, the men that fled to David when David fled from Saul, they were vagabonds, they were political dissidents, they were men of all sorts, they were men from all different cultures. Uriah was a Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite by, by birth. He was a Hittite. And as such, he may have been one of those men that came to David as kind of a, a vagabond or political dissident in that time. We don't, we don't fully know. But David should have loved these men. Because certainly these men loved David. And they had shown themselves extremely loyal to him. That should have meant something to David. We'll talk about that more. But thirdly, we find out that Bathsheba was also the daughter of Eliam. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Eliam. And there's going to be, we're going to get deeper and deeper into this understanding and this connection as we go through the text. But in 2 Samuel 23, verse 24, we find that Eliam was the son of a man named Ahithophel. So Ahithophel's son was Eliam, and Eliam's daughter was Bathsheba. Ahithophel, as we'll find out much later in the text, was one of the wisest men in Israel and was one of David's personal advisors. Ahithophel is going to betray David. And I believe we can trace his bitterness and his anger over his betrayal to this event. David should have respected Ahithophel, one of his most trusted advisors. David had every reason not to pursue this woman. But none of these things were sufficient motivation for David's lust, which had already conceived itself into sin, to be diverted. So we read in verses 4 and 5. David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. David commits adultery with Uriah's wife. She was then purified from her uncleanness, which according to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 18, was a day. She was unclean until that evening from the ceremonial problem of intercourse, from the ceremonial uncleanness of intercourse. Says, again, we talked about this last week. It has nothing to do with... This cleansing had nothing to do with sin. Certainly the adultery was sin. This was just the, the, the ceremonial cleansing of intercourse that every person would have to go through. But what David did not expect was that during this adulterous act, Bathsheba became pregnant. And what this means is that David simply could not brush his sin under the rug because this is going to become obvious. This woman is going to begin to show 
that she's pregnant. And when she does so, the people around her, knowing her husband has been away at battle, are going to accuse her of adultery. At which point she will be stoned. But before she is stoned, she will be put under heavy pressure to reveal the man with whom she committed adultery. And if it does come to light that David is the man with whom she committed adultery, and by the way, there are people in the kingdom that know that, right? Because David inquired, David brought her in, there are people that know that he will be worthy of death. And he will be embarrassed, and he will be shamed, and he will give God a black eye, he'll give his kingdom a black eye, he'll give himself a black eye, a bad, bad situation. And David says, I don't want that, so I'm going to cover my sin. Rather than admit his guilt, confess his sin, while it's still this big, it's going to become much bigger. Verses 6 through 8. David sent to Joab, that would be the captain of his host, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. So David brings Uriah home from the battle. He calls to Joab. He says, Bring Uriah the Hittite. Now this is strange, right? If David is going to inquire simply about the state of the battle, he's not going to take one of his best men off the line. He, can take, he, he, he could take you know, little Jimmy, little, little Jimmy of Judah, and send him home to hear right? how, how the battle goes. Well, it doesn't have to be Uriah the Hittite. It doesn't have to be one of his mighty men. It doesn't have to be one of his great men. So he brings Uriah home. He asks him, how does the battle go? How are the people doing? How has the war prospered? Uriah gives his answers. David says, okay, thank you for your answers. Go home, get some rest, wash your feet. And he sends him home, and he sends him home with a mess of meat, with a, with, with, with a feast, with lots to eat, uh, good night. He can, ha- he can have a great night of rest and of enjoyment. David's intent was that he would go home to his wife, that he would lay with his wife, then that as Bathsheba begins to show that she's pregnant, the people would say, this is Uriah's child. Because of that one day that he was at home. David's attempting to cover his sin. By the providence of God, however, and the honor of the man Uriah, this does not happen. Scriptures tell us, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said to Uriah, Camest thou not from uh, from thy journey? Why then dost thou not go down into thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go in mine house, into mine house, to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even, even... He went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. David is confronted with a man of honor. We could could preach a message on, on Uriah's honor here. Uriah says, The ark and my people and my general are living in tents. How dare I 
bring myself out of that mindset. How dare I spend a night of enjoyment when my men are sleeping in the mud? I wouldn't do that, David. You know me better than that. He's a man of honor. He slept with the servants on the outside of the door. That's where the servants slept so that they could be ready at a moment when, if David were to call. They sleep right outside his door on the floor. That's where the servants of, of the king slept. They can hear him at every moment. They didn't have buzzers, right? They didn't have buzzers. They couldn't be, be called from their room, so they slept at his door. Uriah slept there too, a servant of David, ready to, ready to fight for his king. Kind of a dagger to David's heart, I'd imagine. Man of such honor. But David's in, in too deep. He's already been blinded by his sinful choices. So he tries again. He tries to get Uriah drunk, hoping that in his drunken state he will make the wrong choice. I believe God probably providentially gives Uriah enough of a mind here to not do, to not, God's not going to allow David to have his way out of here. Uriah stays at David's door, sleeps again at the door, ready to serve his king. He's a man of honor. He's a man that's ready to do what his king needs. Uriah the Hittite. David's now in a tough spot. He's tried and he's failed twice to get Uriah to go down to his wife to cover his sin. Well, time to fess up, right? You tried, you, you sinned, you got caught, she's pregnant, confessed. Didn't, nope, nope, going to try to cover it. Try to cover it, bring Uriah back, get him to go home to his wife. Didn't work, try again, didn't work. Okay, the jig's up, right? Time, time to just, I've made a mistake, time to fess up. No. Sin is deceitful. Our flesh is deceitful. Sin says you can yet get away with this. Keeps pushing us deeper into the abyss of godless choices. You know, the consequences of our own poor actions. Instead of cutting it off early, it's getting bigger. It's getting worse. So David realizes he has one more option in covering his sin. Verses 14 to 17, And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were, and the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. David writes a letter to Joab saying, Uriah needs to die. Folds it up, seals it with his ring, and gives it to Uriah himself. Uriah walks that letter faithfully to Joab and says, this is the correspondence unto my king, from my king to you. Joab opens that letter and he reads it and it says, kill Uriah. Make sure he dies. Put him in the hottest battle. And then literally what David said is, have the men abandon him on the front lines. That's what David wanted. That was his tactic. Have the men go with him and then abandon him on the front lines. Joab actually didn't do that. I don't even think Joab could stomach that. Now Joab was a man that at times in his life showed himself honorable, but he also shows himself extremely pragmatic. We'll see that. We've already seen that. We saw that with the way he, he dealt with Ishbosheth and his army. Joab 
disobeyed David's orders and did things that were wrong. We'll see it again with David's son Absalom. It's meant so much so that right on, on David's deathbed, he tells Saul, I mean, tells his son Solomon, you need to kill Joab for what he's done. So Joab has a death sentence coming eventually as well for his sin. But until that time, Joab's the general. And Joab is, is a man that recognizes God. He's a man of honor. And I don't even think he could get away with abandoning a man on the battlefield without questions. So he has a little bit of a different tactic, but he obeys. He obeys without questioning. Uriah the Hittite needs to die. This is what David says. This is what's going to happen. So he finds the most dangerous battle assignment. He places Uriah there, and the text tells us Uriah dies. Re continuing to read in verses 18 through 21, Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise. Why would the king's wrath arise? We'll find out. And he say unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jer um, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall? that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab chose, instead of abandoning Uriah on the battlefield, he chose to pursue a bad battlefield tactic, which was to bring his men right against the wall of a fortified city. What happens when you bring men, men against the wall of a fortified city? Well, you can't do anything to the enemy, but the enemy can do something to you. They can shoot at you, they can throw things at you from above, but you can't do a whole lot from below. A terrible tactic. So terrible, in fact, that Joab is even already, he's in his mind, he's listening to David rebuke him for this because this happened in Israel's history. This is the account here of Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, is found in Judges 9, where Abimelech was attempting, this was, he was attempting to, to elevate himself and they attacked a tower, and a woman threw a millstone down and cracked his head open, cracked his skull open, and he died. This was a battle tactic that they knew from history does not work. David knew it. Joab knew it. And Joab, in his mind, as he did this, this terrible military tactic, he's, lecture, he's hearing David lecture him rebuke him, reprimand him. So he says, when you get there and you say, this is what happened, and we went to the wall, and this many men died, uh, and, and David gets really angry at you because all of these men died, and they didn't have to die because this was a terrible tactic, and Joab knows better than this. Then just mention, oh, by the way, Uriah died also, and that'll, that'll shut his mouth. Basically, David, this is what it took for your order to, to come about. So the report was given to David, and we read in, in uh, this report in verses 22 to 24. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for, and the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. So he chased them back to the city, and the shooters shot from off the wall unto thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So they came out to us, we fought them, we chased them back, they ran back into the city, we chased them to the city, their archers killed us from the wall. Well, David hears the report, he hears that Uriah is dead, and he responds, as thus, verse 25, Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. 
It's the life of a soldier to die. These things happen. Make thy battle more strong against the city and overthrow it and encourage thou him. Encourage him. He's doing a good job. Just he needs to fortify better. He needs to have better tactics. He needs to go. These things happen in war. The sword devours one as the other. David has successfully covered his sin from everyone except the only one that matters. The true and living God who saw not just the sin, but he saw the sins committed to cover it up. Well, we finalize this whole unfortunate event in verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing, here it is, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We're going to talk more about that displeasure next week when we talk about the lies of sin. What sin tries to convince us of. We'll talk a little bit about it tonight. We'll, we'll get deeper into it tomorrow. The consequences of sin. The fallout of David's sin. The fallout is tremendous. Not in a good way. So Uriah, Uriah's wife, and notice she's called Uriah's wife. The whole time she's called Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife hears that her husband is dead. She mourns for him. The time of mourning as we see exemplified in Scripture, Genesis 50, 1 Samuel 31, was seven days. So she mourns for him for seven days, after which David brings her to his house and makes her his wife, and she has the child that is born out of adultery. And the final phrase, of course, is so important. From a man's perspective, David got away with this whole thing. He had the relationship. He covered his sin by murdering the woman's husband, the people are going to think that this is David's child by her after the, adult, or after the marriage, not before. But God was displeased. <clears throat> We're going to stop there. I'm going to give you four points this evening of application. And then I encourage you to come back next week because things are going to get more interesting. Point number one of our application this evening. Outward sin always begins with inward sin. As we consider the initial sin of David, we understand it began simply with him walking out of his roof and gazing upon a woman that was not his to gaze upon. And it's important to mention that temptation is not a sin in and of itself. But rather, what we do with that temptation will either make it a victory or a defeat. James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Lust is defined as an eager desire. And as we consider that concept of lust, uh, that word lust in the English language can actually be used in a positive or a negative sense. We actually find in the book of James that the King James translators use the word lust in regard to the spirit. That the spirit lusteth against the flesh. That the spirit is jealous over you. That the spirit wants you. The spirit feels he owns you and he does not want to give you up to sin. He does not want to give you up to the flesh. However, that word lust there as it's translated in the King James, the Greek word behind it is not the same Greek word used here. And the Greek word used here is a word which is always negative. It speaks of a strong desire for that which is not yours, for that which is not your right, for that which is wrong. 
that which is disallowed by God or disallowed by another or disallowed by a circumstance. It's wanting something you cannot have or wanting something you should not have. Now, God is not the author of temptation unto sin. God is the author of circumstances by which we are tempted. God will bring circumstances into our lives that will tempt us. 2 Corinthians tells us there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation also make a way of escape, who uh, does not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. So God, God sees the circumstances. He allows the circumstances. He does so in a way that gives us a way of escape, that we may be able to bear the temptation and this can be a bit confusing, so, so allow me to illustrate. Temptation is a response to our lusts, and everyone lusts in a different way. Imagine uh, there, uh, there's a big cake that's being put in the center of this room, and we put a big cake in the center of this room. Double chocolate fudge with crunchy sprinkles. Crunchy sprinkles. Now, the same opportunity exists for each of us to eat that cake. But the temptation to eat that cake is not going to be the same for each of us. Right? Some, of, so, some people in this room, particularly the pregnant woman in this room, will, 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 will want that cake. There will be a great temptation there. Others of us could take it or leave it. Others of us would say absolutely not. It's a temptation to some. It's not a temptation to others. The same circumstance is a temptation for some, but not for everyone. Now, if God were to have placed that cake in the middle of the room, we can rightly say that God is placing a circumstance in our lives. We cannot rightly say that God is bringing the temptation because some are tempted and some aren't. He's, he's, he's allowing the circumstance. But the temptation is based upon our own propensity toward that cake, our own desire or lack of desire for that cake. Now, if God were to rather pull off that cake and place it instead a platter of chocolate chip cookies. The temptation, which may not have been there for certain people in, in, in the context of the chocolate cake with crunchy sprinkles, may be there in the context of the chocolate chip cookies. Or take away the chocolate chip cookies and put, name whatever it is you love that you can't resist. Chips, popcorn, whatever. Some people will say, nah, I can take it or leave that. Nah, I don't even want that. Others will say, I, I want that. God, God is, is, is placing the circumstance there. But each of us are going to respond differently. Our lusts, the things that we love, the things that we want, bring about temptation or lack of temptation in any given circumstance. Some men can walk through Walmart with girls basically walking around in their underwear, as happens today especially in the summer, and it's, it's not a problem to them. They've, they've got, that's just not, I mean, it's not that they, they, they aren't men, they don't have a, a thought life, they don't have the things, but that's not, it's under control. Other men simply can't handle it. Some people have a debt problem. They've just got to spend money. If there's a possibility to spend money, they, they're going to spend it. They can't, they can't own credit cards, or they're going to spend money that they don't own. Other people, it's not a problem. They recognize this is how much is in the bank, this is how much I have to spend. It's never a problem. 
It's not a temptation to them. Some people are tempted to lie. Some people aren't. Some people are tempted to cheat. Some people aren't. The circumstances that we come across might be similar, but how we respond to them is based upon the lust problems that we each have in our own hearts and the propensities that we have. And that brings us to places of temptation. So it's not necessarily a sin to be tempted because temptation is just a propensity. It's a part of us being sinful, a sin nature. Some of us are tempted for certain things, some of us aren't, but we're all tempted somewhere. But notice what the text says. When this lust, this inappropriate desire for something that is wrong, when it conceives, it brings forth sin. The pictures of a woman having a baby, that's that what that word conceive means. When lust is brought to its natural end, the end is sin. The end of that lust is sin. When we are tempted because of something, something we want that we can't have or that is wrong. And at, if we indulge that desire, it's going to bring forth sin. If you allow the lust, the inappropriate desires of your heart to remain without opposing them, if you entertain them, they lead you in one direction and only one direction, and that direction is sin. And not every sin is an action. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught this very clearly in Matthew 5-7. through As he talked about murder. You say, thou shalt not kill. I say, if you hate a man in your heart, you've murdered him already. You say, thou shalt not commit adultery. I say unto you that if you continually dwell, lust after a woman in your heart, you continually dwell on her, you fantasize about her, you dwell on her in your heart, it's sin already. You have already given in to the temptation. The temptation was not a sin, but as soon as you dwell on it, the sin's already there, whether you ever act on it or not. And sin, whether inward or outward, James tells us, brings forth death. When the Bible speaks of death, it can mean physical death, but it can also mean spiritual death, which is separation from God. Now certainly, many a man has been brought to physical death by his sin. In David's case, his sin led to the death of another man, didn't it? Led to the death of his child. We'll talk about the deaths of many more as well next week. We'll talk about the consequences of his sin, and I bet it's farther than you've thought of before. But the warning here is that sin naturally separates men from God. And every time you sin, your relationship with God is affected. There's a separation between you and God. Separation which strips you of your joy. A separation which strips you of blessing. Now we know that if you're a believer, you're not, you, you, you're not separated from God in the eternal sense when you sin, right? The Bible tells us that. We'll talk about that more next week. You're not separated from God in an eternal context when you sin as a believer. But you know what you are? What does happen when you sin as a believer? You fall out of fellowship. You grieve the Spirit of God. You're quenching the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not able to bear its fruit in you. You are out of fellowship. You will lack discernment. You will lack wisdom. You will lack God's capacity to guide you, to direct you, to help you, to bless you in in, in those ways. And James' exhortation is that we, as beloved brethren, would not err that we would not allow 
when our lusts kick up and we are tempted, that we would not allow that temptation, either inwardly or outwardly, to conceive itself into sin by pursuing that lust. David's problem did not begin when he actually took Bathsheba. David's problem began when he allowed, when he saw a woman bathing and he dwelt upon it. And he allowed this lust, and we know that he has this propensity, right? He's already taken multiple women. He's got a woman problem. He loves women. Many men do. He's allowing his lust, that propensity within him, as it tempts him, he is allowing that lust to conceive and to bring forth sin. He's entertaining its notions. Second warning this evening. Number two. First, outward sin always begins with inward sin. Secondly, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and delivers less than it promises. You can write it down. You can mark it. You can set your watch by this. It will always take you farther than you wanted to go. It will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will always deliver less than what it promises. What was going through David's mind as he entertained these thoughts of this sin? You're the king. You're entitled. No one will get hurt. It's a victimless crime. It's a victimless sin. No one will get hurt. It's just me and her. No one will know. No one will get hurt. It's only one time. Does it really matter that much? Sin is deceitful. Because it appeals to everything that this world loves and everything that our flesh craves. Rebellion against God is man's natural predisposition. It's what we're, we're, our sin has wired us to do, to rebel against God. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's what Satan used to tempt Eve. Hath God truly said, God's holding back from you. God is withholding something from you. God doesn't want you to be like him. God, God knows that the day you eat of this, you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. But here's the thing about sin. Sin never tells you the whole story. Behind every promise that lying or cheating will get you out of that jam, it doesn't tell you about the lies which will need to be told to support the lies that you've already told. It doesn't tell you about the family and the friend relationships which will crumble by your untrustworthiness. It doesn't tell you that this little lie will put a wedge between you and the most important people in your life. And it will drive you from each other nor does it tell you that it will put a wedge between you and the most important one in your life, your God and Savior. Behind every promise that stealing will increase your wealth and therefore your happiness, it doesn't tell you about the loss of integrity, the dulling of conscience. It doesn't tell you about the fellowship that it puts between you and God. It doesn't tell you that in doing so, you are not learning to put your faith in God. You are literally damaging your capacity to trust the Lord and your spiritual life. Behind every beer commercial, which tells you how great of a time you're going to have, do you know what they don't tell you? You all know what they don't tell you. They don't tell you about the people behind the bar vomiting. They don't tell you about the broken marriages. They don't tell you about the kids dealing with divorce situations. They don't tell you about the addictions. They don't tell you about the people I visit every week in the jail. They don't tell you about the young lady I visited this week, 25 years old, with a 9-year-old girl and a 4-year-old girl, who is now in jail, whose daughter, daughters are now with people that they hardly know. 
living there because mom is in jail with a DWI, because she can't keep herself under control. They don't tell you about the fact that when a parent is in jail, the likelihood that children are going to go to jail is in the 70 to 80% range. None of that's in the beer commercial. Sin doesn't tell you that when it's encouraging you to get a part of, get, get into it. Behind every fit of anger, which sin calls a real man, a real man, right? Defends himself. A real man stands up for himself. A real man won't take that out of anybody. Doesn't mention the emotional and physical pain of the people that are affected by his anger. Family, friends, loved ones, children. David's sin began as one act of adultery with the wife of his loyal comrade, the granddaughter of his trusted advisor. But that didn't work because Bathsheba became pregnant. David may or may not get caught, but there are a few scenarios where Bathsheba does not die from this. David now must cover it up. It became deceit as he sought to manipulate his comrade Uriah the Hittite into dishonorably ignoring his duty to cover up David's lusts. Uriah wouldn't do it. That didn't work. So David murders him. When David was standing upon his roof looking down at a lovely woman without her clothes on, did he in a million years ever think that following that lustful thought to its sinful conclusion would lead to murder? I dare say he didn't. Every week, I sit in the jail across from men and women who never thought their choices would bring them to where they are. They tell me that they aren't really that person. But they have pursued the promises of sin. And sin took them farther than they said it would go, kept them longer than it said that they would stay, and delivered far less than that sin promised them. And this happens every time because sin doesn't tell you its cost. As David was weighing whether or not to commit adultery with Uriah's wife, I can almost guarantee you murder did not enter his mind. But murder is where that sin led him. And each of us sits in our seats surrounded by stained glass, sitting here in our Sunday clothes, and we insist that our sin could never take us there. And we might just be right. But who in this room can say that they're of greater spiritual character than David? And whether or not you ever end up murdering someone for your sin, I can tell you this without reservation. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. It will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will always deliver less than what it promised. Sin is the very opposite of God. That's the very definition of sin, the opposite of that which is God. Which means it's the opposite of truth. Which means it's the opposite of light. Which means it's the opposite of everything that is right. And if you want to get everything promised to you by a course of action, if you want a course of action where its word will be its bond, where what it says is what it means, where it is what it is at face value, that course of action had better be God's way. Because God's way is truth. Sin is not truth. Sin is lies. Sin is error. Sin is deceit. God's way is true. You want, you want to take a course of action where you'll get exactly 
what, what it promises, listen to this book. You'll, you'll get exactly what it promises if you obey the word of God. Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. That's the point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What was going through David's mind as he entertained those thoughts? Well, certainly not what we would have expected. Not what he would have expected. Point number three. No one has ever gotten away with sin. One, outward sin always begins with inward sin. Number two, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, delivers less than it promised. Number three, no one has ever gotten away with a sin. We consider this scenario, a scenario in which David commits adultery and Bathsheba doesn't get pregnant. Let's, commit, let, let, let's assume that scenario. Bathsheba does not get pregnant. She goes back home. They move on with their lives. Or we consider a scenario where David's plot with Uriah works. He goes down and he lays with his wife. The child is born and considered Uriah's own. David got away with it, right? Wrong. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Theological terms, we call this God's omnipresence. God's omniscience. He, he is everywhere. He knows everything. God sees everything you do. But let's go deeper. This is Solomon. Solomon had his own problems. David's son. A son, by the way, with Bathsheba. Not the, not the son of adultery. That son will die. This is a, the next son with Bathsheba. He writes this at the very end of Ecclesiastes, which was a book about fulfilling the pleasures of sin for a season and recognizing that there's no pleasure in it. It's all temporary. I mean, there's pleasure, right? There's temporary pleasure. But there's no, there's no fulfillment in it. That's the word I was looking for. So Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Why? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Every work shall be brought into judgment. There are no secret actions with God. There are no secret thoughts with God. We mentioned already that sin begins in the heart. God sees those things too. God knows the words which you don't tell your spouse out loud, but which you do in your heart. God knows the thoughts which you would never act upon, but which you entertain in your own heart. You can hide in the dark corners of your house or in the dark corners of society, even in the dark corners of your own heart. But God sees those dark corners. And more so, he warned us about this very thing in Luke 8. We talked about it in Sunday school recently. Jesus gave a parable about the seeds in the different soil. He was teaching about four different types of hearts into which the word of God can land. The wayside being hearts unwilling to listen or receive the word of God at all. The stony ground being hearts which hear, but the trials of this life that accompany the word cause the man to fail in his resolve and he abandons the truths of God. The thorny ground being hearts which hear and even begin to bear fruit, but then the cares and the love of this world chokes out that fruit and it becomes fruitless. 
And then there's the good ground, where the word of God falls upon it and it bears much fruit. And following Jesus' parable, he told the disciples in Luke 8, verses 17 and 18 this, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither is anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him, it shall, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that which he seemeth to have. The secrets will be made known. You can't cheat the system. What you sow is what you will reap. And the final point is, that he makes is, so be careful how you hear. Be careful that you're the good ground. Be careful that you are allowing the word of God not just to hit your heart, but to bear fruit through having good receptive soil in faith. Because the secrets of your heart will be made known. One final point for this evening. First, outward sin always begins with inward sin. Second, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, delivers less than it promised. Third, no one has ever gotten away with a sin because God knows and those secrets will be made known. Fourth, God hates sin. God hates sin. And if you love God, you should hate sin also. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that your love for the world is overriding your love for God. Remember, 1 John is written to believers. It's not written to an unbelieving audience. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is a promise that you can trust. God loves the world, but he doesn't love that which is in the world, that being the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world passes away. The promises of sin, the things of the world, they come and they go. They're here and they're gone. Temporary pleasure, what Hebrews 11 calls the pleasures of sin for a season. There's a season of your life that you have to live. And within that season, there are temptations to sin. And that sin brings a, a fleshly pleasure, but it's so fleeting, it's so temporary. Our lives, they're here and they're gone, but what we do in this time will last for eternity if we do it for Christ. What we do in this life that we don't do for Christ will burn up and be counted as worthless. And so we read three chapters later in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. We ought to want to keep God's commandments. We ought to love to keep God's commandments, because if we love God, then we want to do... Have you ever, have you ever seen this with your children, those of you that have children? Have you ever seen your child do something simply to see you happy? They come up and they say, I did this because I, I know that it would make you happy. Or they come up and they say, Daddy, I cleaned up my room today. And their motivation is to see you smile and say, I'm so proud of you. They are doing what they're doing because they love you. They wanted to clean their room, not because it's natural for a kid to want to, but some it is, to clean 
but because they wanted to please their daddy. They wanted to please their mom. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. And you want to, because you love him. And because you love God, you want to please him. One final thought, and then we'll wrap it up. You all know that I, I give you a custom outline for every book that I preach. Before I preach a book, I give you an outline of that book that you can follow. I don't think we have any of Second Samuel out on the table right now, but I'll, I will bring them back out. They need to be out there. We may be out of them. In the Second Samuel outline that I gave you, I gave you a chart. And that chart has a particular observation on it, which I would like for you to consider. Right at the top of that chart, we see this tracing of David's triumphs and David's troubles. From the very beginning of 2 Samuel, we have witnessed triumph after triumph, right? Throughout this book. Triumph over the house of Saul. Triumph over the Philistines. Triumph over the Moabites. Triumph over the Edomites. Triumph over the Syrians. Triumph over the Ammonites. David is just winning and winning and winning. <laughs> He's happy. Hiram built him a house of cedars. He is at rest. He has the kingdom. His enemies have been put down. The people are happy. The people are prosperous. He's, he's, everything's going great. And then something happens. And we'll see over the course of the next many weeks, David's family becomes a mess. He has a son that rapes his half-sister. He has another son who kills that son for raping his sister. That son will over, seek to overthrow the kingdom, the throne. David will have to flee. That son will, will humiliate his father. Then that son will be killed by his general after he told his general not to kill him. Then there will be another son who seeks to claim the throne from Solomon. His life will become a tremendous mess of interpersonal problems. And it all happens after this event. And we're going to see why all of that's going to happen in 2 Samuel 12. This event, which began with an innocent stroll on his roof, then became lust, then became adultery, then became deception, then became murder, will initiate the decline of David's kingdom, his household, his family. The actions of these weeks from his choice to commit adultery to the time that he had Uriah murdered, will chart the unfortunate events which plague the very rest of his life and will set precedent for future kings. And we'll talk about that more next week, but, but we need to know that sin has consequences. And we need to see this trend that the seminal point in David's life where everything went from going great to rough surrounded a choice to sin and then a choice to cover it up. This decision will haunt him for the rest of his life. Today, however, it is for us to become a little bit wiser. Children, adults, consider well these points. Outward sin always begins with inward sin. Sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, delivers less than it promises. No one has ever gotten away with sin. And God hates sin.
And may God help us to take the lessons of David in 2 Samuel 11 and use them in our lives so that we might avoid sin rather than have to learn lessons the hard way. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank